This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Now, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, we'll read verses, we'll be looking tonight at verses 1 through 32. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 32. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read through the whole chapter. What I would like to do is to uh, take it a passage at a time. Uh, what I also would like to do is do something a little bit unusual, and that is start in the second half of the text and look at it first, and then we'll come back and look at the first part. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, open to our hearts, open to our minds this evening your word. Father, we recognize that to understand your word as we ought to understand it in a way that changes us, Lord, we need the help of your spirit and we need his light and his leading. And so we pray for that. We pray that you would give us humble hearts to hear what you have to say. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems that there was... Uh, communication between those Israelites who had been taken into captivity in Babylon, the first wave of exiles who had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar into Babylon, and those who remained in Jerusalem. Now, at first glance, it would be easy to think that the favored ones were the ones who were still in Jerusalem, still there in the land, still in the holy city in Judah. But we know better than that, because as we've seen in our study of Jeremiah, if you go back to chapter 24, Jeremiah's vision of the good figs and the bad figs, applying it to those who were in exile and those who were still in Jerusalem, uh, an initial impulse might lead you to think, well, the good figs are those still in the city. The bad figs are those who have been taken away from the land. After all, that was God's judgment, right? And yet it was not the case. The good figs were those who he had put in exile away from Judah whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. The Lord says, I will set my eyes on, eyes on them for good. The bad figs, they were so bad they couldn't be eaten, Or Zedekiah, the puppet kings, appointed uh, a king of Judah, appointed by Zedekiah, and those who remain in Jerusalem. Because remember, the Lord had told them to submit to the Babylonians, to surrender. His judgment upon them, they needed to acquiesce, they needed to yield to that, and so there's a bit of a switch. Good figs and the favored ones are those who are in exile. And the bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten, are the ones who remain in the land. Now, it seems there was communication between the two. And we've already looked uh, last time at the false messages they were hearing in Jerusalem. Right? Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you know, within two years, I'm going to bring everybody back to Jerusalem. And the difficulty they faced, because Jeremiah was saying something, Hananiah was saying something completely opposite, and the question is, who do you listen to? Which one is speaking the truth? Which one really is declaring the message of the Lord? But false prophets were not a problem in Jerusalem alone. There were also false prophets, apparently, speaking, declaring the word of the Lord among the exiles in Babylon. 
And so what I want us to do in this passage is to start in the second part of it, kind of the negative part of it, where you have this problem of false prophets, uh, of bad information going to them, and look at how that's addressed, and then go back and look at the more positive part of the the passage, which is the first half. So let's begin by looking at verse 15. Uh, Jeremiah says this, addressing the exiles. This is in a letter that he sent to the people in exile. Because you have said, the exiles, you exiles, have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, Jerusalem, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them, that is, everyone in Jerusalem, sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like the vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently sent to you by my servants the prophets, but you would not listen, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes. Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they've done an outrageous thing in Israel, and they've committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they've spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I'm the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. What's going on here? Well, Jeremiah writes to these exiles in Babylon, and he says, you you said, apparently he's heard from them. This is almost kind of like a, a Pauline epistle, you know, where Paul says, in response to your letter, I have this to say. Well, apparently... Jeremiah has heard, uh, at least firsthand, at least secondhand, maybe firsthand from the exiles, that there were prophets speaking in the name of the Lord there among them in Babylon. And uh, Jeremiah says, because you've said this, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. Then he gives this whole message of doom on Jerusalem. What's that about? Well, what were the prophets in, in, among the exiles saying? Well, apparently, they were saying the same kinds of things that Hananiah in Jerusalem was saying. Within two years, the Lord's going to bring you back to Jerusalem. He's going to restore Israel. He's going to throw off the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And what is Jeremiah's response? Well, if you've been with us in the series, it should sound very familiar. Sword, famine, and pestilence, which we all know is the judgment of God. And in fact, the language is similar to some of the things Jeremiah has just said. In answer to the messages of these false prophets, Jeremiah says, no, you don't think you're going to come back to this city in a couple of years. This city is going to be destroyed. The Lord is going to bring his judgment on it. He's going to strike it down. Now, that, of course, was probably discouraging to the exiles. Uh, Maybe not what they wanted to hear but it was what they needed to hear because it was, in fact, the truth. It was the message of God. And so Jeremiah addresses these false hopes 
that had been kindled by the false prophets among the exiles in Babylon. Then he addresses the false prophets themselves, beginning in verse 20, uh, where he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab and concerning Zedekiah, who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. He knows who these men are. He has their names, at least. He may know them or be aware of them, but at least he has their names. And he, he predicts a particular judgment for them. Uh, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He'll strike them down before your eyes. In fact, it would be such a horrid end to them that their end would become proverbial. In fact, he says, you all are going to take what happened to them and use it as a curse, a malediction. Uh, may you be like Ahab and Zedekiah, who got roasted at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. You wonder if they weren't treated to the fiery furnace uh, that kind of business, you know, that we read about in Daniel, where the exiles were in Babylon. Ezekiel was one of those who were part of this wave that got uh, taken out to Babylon as well. So all the prophets there were not bad. Uh, but these two, Ahab and Zedekiah in particular, uh, met a painful and scary end at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar precisely because they were false prophets. Uh, we saw that with Hananiah. In fact, Jeremiah prophesied his, his own death that very year. And in fact, two months later, Hananiah died. Well, now these two false prophets die as well, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire uh, because they've done, an, Jeremiah comments, because they've done an outrageous thing in Israel. Uh, their immorality, committing adultery, uh, and prophesying in the name of the Lord what the Lord had never sent him. I will say, just on a personal note, um, you know, reading Jeremiah and the warning against the false prophets, and the Lord says, whom I have not sent. I have to tell you, when, I, when the Lord uh, was calling me to the ministry, Jeremiah was a huge stumbling block to me because I, I saw what happened to those whom the Lord hadn't called and whom he hadn't sent, and uh, I didn't want to be among their number. Uh, so I had to look at that long and hard. Uh, but that's what happened. Uh, and so Jeremiah... Tells the people a discouraging message. You hope to come back to Jerusalem, but God's judgment is coming on Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem, at least for the time being, is not the plan. It's going to get it bad. Uh, but then he directly addresses these false prophets that are there misleading the people. And uh, in fact, he says their ends can be so bad you'll use it as a as a proverbial byword for having something bad happen to you. But then, uh, again, kind of in this situation of dealing with the, the false prophets and the problems among the exiles, verse 24 and following, Jeremiah has to address something that's directed against himself and against his own message. As we've already seen, there's been opposition to Jeremiah, and we haven't seen the last of that. Verse 24, uh, Jeremiah, continuing his letter to the exiles, he's writing to them, he says to Shemaiah of Nehalem, you shall say, thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel. You have sent letters in your name to all the people who are in Jerusalem and to Zephaniah, the son of Maaseiah, the priest, and to all the priests, saying, the Lord has made you priest instead of Jehoiada, the priest, to have charge in the house of the Lord over every madman who prophesies to put him in the stocks. And neck irons. Now remember, Jeremiah is addressing a letter that was sent to another man appointing him as priest to deal with madmen, prophets, 
to put him in stocks and neck irons. And, and as part of that assignment, uh, this Shemaiah says, Now why have you not rebuked Jeremiah of Anathoth, who is prophesying to you? For he has sent to us in Babylon, saying, Your exile will be long. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. They don't like that message. Just as in Jerusalem, they don't like that message. Well, verse 29, Zephaniah the priest read this letter in the hearing of Jeremiah the prophet. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Nehelam, because Shemaiah had prophesied to you when I did not send him and has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehelam and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people, and he shall not see the good that I will do to my people, declares the Lord. For he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. Again, the Lord threatening to punish this man who himself was trying to instigate opposition against Jeremiah, uh, trying to silence him, trying to shut down his message, which in fact was the true message of the Lord. And so Jeremiah is continuing to have to address these false prophets as well as address opposition to himself because of the message he proclaimed. Now, what do we make of all this? What do we do about this? Well, it seems to me that we should be very concerned about those who preach a false message, uh, whether they are preaching that false message in the name of the Lord, in the name of Christianity, or preaching a false message in the name of other religions that make no claim to Christianity, uh, to be biblical in the sense of following the Bible, and yet captivate and lead many astray. Um, it seems that certainly if we're able firsthand to speak in the name of Christ to such people, that's our opportunity and, and, and privilege to do so. But more broadly, it would seem that given the Lord's opposition to such people, that we would pray for that that we would pray for those who speak a false message, who, as he says, lead astray, lead people to believe a lie, that the Lord would either convert them or remove them, that he would either bring them to see their errors in, in, in repentance and faith in Christ, or that he would remove them, that he would otherwise render their message ineffective. That's a, a worthy thing to pray for. When we pray, thy kingdom come, and positively we're praying for the spread of the gospel of Christ, but it seems as part of that message that we have an obligation under that to pray for the failure of error, to pray that people would not be captive and in bondage under wrong teaching, and that those who promulgate that teaching would either see the error of what they are saying and come to Christ, Oh, that the Lord would strike them down or remove them or silence them or render them ineffective, uh, whatever it takes, in order that his truth might be proclaimed. Is that harsh? Well, no. That's why we pray first for their conversion, that they might themselves might be brought to Christ, that they would see the truth, just as, as Saul of Tarsus was an enemy to the church and leading people astray and seeking to oppose the true work of God, though he didn't see it that way at the time, he later came to see it that way, and of course, uh, the Lord used him magnificently. And so we should pray for those people 
who uh, seek to undermine, whether it's a religious leader, scientific leader, whoever it might be, for their conversion, uh, and if not that, uh, that they might join in spreading the truth of Christ, then at least they're silencing in an effectiveness one way or another, because the stakes are too high to be nice to people who are spreading error. Yes, we love them in Christ, and we would love to see them come to Christ, but if not that, we certainly don't want them leading people away from Christ. Well, that's what's going on here in the second half of this passage, and if we want to put it this way, the more negative part of the passage, dealing with being led astray, false messages, opposition to the true prophet and work of God here. But let's turn our attention now to verses 1 through 14, Uh, The first part of the chapter that talks about Jeremiah's letter and more positively what he has to say to the exiles in Babylon. Let's begin in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elassah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So apparently Jeremiah had this letter to them, and he sent it by way of this envoy that was traveling from the king, Uh, Maybe the king didn't know about this letter, but it was traveling with his envoy going to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Jeremiah uh, gets a letter in that uh, that mail. Here's the letter, verse 4. It says, where it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel. Now we're used to having that message writing to us. In this case, it was a writing to the exiles. Jeremiah wasn't saying with his tongue, Thus says the Lord, as he spoke the message. He says it in writing, thus says the Lord. So a written message to the exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. Jeremiah's message is a little bit surprising to them, perhaps, and certainly different from what they were hearing from the false prophets. 
what Jeremiah basically says is settle down. Plan for a long stay. Make your life there in Babylon. We begin in verse 4, or in verse 5 rather. This is the message of the Lord, not just Jeremiah, the message of the Lord. Build houses and live in them. Well, you only do that when you plan to be around a while. Uh, it's true today. It was true then. Uh, plant gardens and eat their produce. Uh, apparently, uh, as exiles in a foreign land, they were not given vast tracts of land to cultivate, but they did have some land that they t- could take care of. The uh, Babylonians, like the Assyrians before them, and the Romans sometime after them, tended to be fairly lenient toward those whom they conquered. Uh, they, they had some restrictions, but on the whole, uh, the common people taken in exile were treated badly. Uh, as we saw, Zedekiah uh, was put to a bad end. Many of the leaders who were taken into exile were, uh, but most of the people who were taken uh, were kept there. Uh, they were given places to stay, an area to be in. Sometimes the um, Babylonians would put them to work rebuilding or trying to reclaim areas that had been destroyed by war. Uh, or other things, but so some forced labor would be involved, but for the most part, they let them live and carry on as they as they would, and so they could plant gardens and their produce, which eat produce, which of course itself involves some length of time uh, that they would be there. Uh, let your lives go on as they normally would, take wives, have sons and daughters, again, having children with a view toward Uh, A future, this was not the end. Take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, grandchildren. Uh, Which, interestingly enough, um, if you look at the generations there, would come out to be toward 70 years, the years that he said. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, don't develop a a fortress mentality. We're just going to hunker down and wait. We're only going to be here a short time. Uh, then we're heading back to Jerusalem, and then we'll get on with our lives. Jeremiah saying, no, no, don't do that. You get on with your lives there in Babylon. Uh, you, you get married. You have children. You give wives and, and, and uh, husbands and wives to your children. Let them have grandchildren. You build houses. You plant gardens. In other words, you bloom where you're planted. You make your life there in Babylon. Don't, don't have this idea you're there for a short time. Multiply. Don't decrease. So that's them. That's the exiles themselves. They were to go on about their lives as if they were in Israel, as if they were in Jerusalem. They were to settle down. They were to make themselves at home. They were going to live their lives. Uh, But then also with regard to Babylon itself. But seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile, which of course would be Babylon its city, but using that sort of as for the whole, just the whole area, the whole nation where you are. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now that's a pretty astonishing thought. Seek the welfare of the city where you dwell. In other words, don't don't try to undermine it. Don't try to thwart it. In fact, just the opposite. Pray for Babylon. Pray for that place where you are. Whatever you might feel about it, that's where you are. And you make yourself at home there and you live there and you seek its welfare and you pray for its welfare. Uh, God was bigger than Israel. Sometimes they didn't see that. You know, when, when Israel, uh, or when the Lord would refer to Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, that's a radical idea. They would have thought, well, 
The Lord hates all these other nations just like we do. Who are all these others anyway? Uh, but the Lord could refer to Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Not that Nebuchadnezzar served the Lord or worshipped him, except indirectly as the instrument of the Lord uh, in bringing his judgment on Jerusalem and other nations, and Babylon would itself get its judgment in due time under the Persians. Uh, but so in the same way, the Lord tells his people to pray for that place where they are. Seek its welfare. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And then again, the message, don't uh, listen to the prophets, uh, the false prophets. That's one reason he gives this message. For thus says the Lord, verse 8, don't let them deceive you. Uh, One reason he gives the message to settle down is because... um, These false prophets are giving you a false message, and I have to tell you this. This is where you're going to be. This is where you need to live. Then he goes on to speak to them about the future that he has for them. Before we we go there, let's go back and just think about where they are in Babylon, you know, and what what that has to say to us um, as we think about where we live. Uh, in in, In some ways, we are like those exiles, uh, they are taken out of Jerusalem. They are taken out of the land the Lord had given them and brought them into, put them in a place that was not their home, uh, and yet tells them to live there. Well, the situation is somewhat analogous to where we are uh, here. Um, we look forward to a city uh, whose builder is God, like Abraham. We're looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, a permanent home. Uh, at the same time, here we are. We live in this country, the United States of America. We live in the state of Georgia. We live in greater Atlanta. What are we to make of that? What is to be our relationship to that? Well, all of that can get very complicated, the relationship of a Christian to his culture politically, uh, culturally, and so forth. Uh, too often, Christians have sort of looked at where they are as the enemy. And there's something to that. We want to be on guard. We want to be careful that we don't just become assimilated into the world. Remember, the Lord didn't say to them, become Babylonians. That was never the message. But the message is, that's where you are. That's where I've put you. And that's where you need to live for a while and settle in. And so as we look at where we are here in the world, I would suggest to you that our, our relationship to the political and cultural structures around us doesn't need to see that so much as the enemy, but rather, as Jeremiah says to them, on the one hand, to seek the welfare of the city where we live. That as Christians, we are also citizens of this nation, citizens of this state, and it's entirely appropriate as Christians to seek its welfare, to be involved in trying to make it a better place, to serve the people God has put us among, uh, to serve the structures that, that govern and function where we are as best we can. Uh, and certainly, as he says, to pray to the Lord on its behalf. And, of course, you hear the echo of that later in the New Testament, uh, where we're instructed to pray for kings and those in authority over us. Um, in a sense, we're, we're like those people. We are people living in exile. We are not yet home. And so here we are. We are to seek the welfare of this place where we live. Uh, we are to pray for it and for the Lord's blessing and help for it. Will it be perfect? Never. Uh, and yet here we are, and we're called to, in essence, be a blessing to it by seeking its welfare, 
and by praying for it. All too often, I'm afraid uh, Christians have gotten a reputation uh, for being against everything, uh, for being hypocritical, for being judgmental and and not compassionate. And in a sense, that's tragic. And that's not the kind of reputation the Israelites were to have when they were in Babylon. And it's certainly not the kind of reputation we want to develop here in this city, this place in which we live as God's people in exile. But to settle in, to live our lives, uh, to cultivate our lives here, and to seek its welfare, to pray for it. Now, he says that again for two reasons. One, because they're hearing a false message. But two, second reason he says that is because the Lord does, in fact, have plans for them, plans for their future. And again in verse 10, when 70 years are completed, not the two years the false prophets were giving, uh, they, they, in fact, uh, were right. Their timing was off. The Lord was going to bring those people back, uh, but not in two years. In 70 years, several generations later, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. Notice he doesn't say for you, but for Babylon, because then Babylon would meet its end. He, the Lord says, I will visit you. That means he, he's to come to them with his presence, with his blessing. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Why? Well, verse 11, that familiar verse, the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. Think about that. Why would the Lord say it that way? Because they didn't. They didn't know. They didn't know what God was doing. But the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. You know, we're often in that position. Wow, this doesn't seem to be going well. You know, what, what on earth is going on? Everything seems to be falling apart. You know, is God still reigning? Does he know what's going on? The Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. We may not know them, but it should be enough for us to know that God knows them, that the Lord knows them. That's what he says. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for what? Plans for wholeness, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Boy, if there's anything they may have thought they didn't have, it was a future. Here their nation had been conquered by a foreign power, and they had been forcibly taken from their homeland to a foreign nation, to people who spoke a different language. They had seen their leaders executed. The last thing they probably thought they would have had would be a future and hope. Those two words may be put together, something like a, a hopeful future or a future of hope. Uh, and that is, in fact, what the Lord promises. And you'll call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. And I will bring you back. Second time he says this, I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. What is the Lord doing? What are his purposes here? Well, they are revealed here, and not just to bring them back. Something even more important than that. These were some of the same people there in Jerusalem who were saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And we've got the temple. We are the people. Is there anyone like us? And they thought they could live any way that they pleased. And because the temple was there, because God was present with them, they were... Uh, immune from any uh, any consequences. 
We've looked at that in Jeremiah. The problem with the, the empty outward forms of worship without the heart, that misguided confidence in the mere fact that the temple was there in their presence, and Jeremiah would say, hey, remember Shiloh, one, at one time the worship center for Israel, and it's ruins, it was ruins in Jeremiah's day. But their confidence was in the temple. Their confidence was in their identity. Their confidence was in their religion. Their confidence was not in the Lord. And so what does the Lord do with these good figs? Why were they the good figs? Because the Lord removed them from the land. The Lord stripped away from them the temple. The Lord stripped away from them the altar and the sacrifices. The Lord stripped away from them the city of Jerusalem. He even stripped away from them the land of Judah. And He takes them off to where they have nothing left except the Lord. That's all they had left. And the Lord says, Then you'll call upon Me, and you'll come and pray to Me, and I will hear you. You will seek Me and find Me. When you seek Me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. This was not judgment. It was discipline. Taking a people whose hearts had begun to trust in all the wrong things and not in the right one, stripping it all away, to teach them once again, to teach them, give them a new opportunity to learn to call on the name of the Lord. Do you remember what happened when the Lord brought them back? When Ezra comes back and Nehemiah comes back? They are people who trusted in the Lord. Ezra would get up and read the law of the Lord and expound it, and the people gathered and listened. Nehemiah comes back and starts rebuilding the walls, and the people follow him and begin that work in spite of opposition, in spite of their enemies, and as Nehemiah is praying and leading them in prayer to the Lord to watch over them and keep them safe. You see, 70 years later, the people who returned to Jerusalem were a very different people indeed. They weren't worshiping the moon goddess and all that nonsense. They were worshiping the Lord. And that's what he says here. He takes them and strips it all away. We as Christians are a people in exile by the mere fact that we're here and not in our heavenly home. But God also sometimes leads us into personal exiles. Times that are very hard. Times where he seems to strip away those things that we counted on. Employment. Loved ones. Comfortable circumstances, removing those things to say, I'm going to take those things away for a time to teach you to trust in me, to come back again and call on my name. Because sometimes we begin to trust in all of these other things, even our own abilities, without really even being conscious of it. And we don't realize it until they're gone. Then we have nothing left but the Lord Himself. And the Lord says to us when we get in those places, and they're scary, and they can be hard, and we think, what's going to happen? And the Lord comes back and He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for wholeness, not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. But He's training us like He trained them, to come back to Him, to call upon Him, to look to Him. Because the Lord will lead us out of those personal exiles, and the Lord is going to lead us out of this corporate Exile here in this fallen world and bring us into heaven and bring us one day at Christ's return into a new heavens and a new earth when all exiles, personal and corporate, will be over 
forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we recognize Your grace even in the midst of their difficulty. Lord, even what looked like a catastrophic judgment was in fact Your mercy to those people that You removed from Jerusalem. Father, human wisdom would say they were the unlucky ones. They were the ones who got it bad. And yet, Lord, how much suffering there was for those who stayed in Jerusalem, those who were there. But, Father, how much blessing came to Your people in exile. Father, we're not where they are, but in many ways we endure exiles as well. Exiles of our circumstances, exiles of the soul. Father, we pray that you'd use those things indeed uh, to carry out your plans uh, for wholeness, completeness, for shalom for us. And Father, we thank you that in Christ we do have a future, we do have a hope, and we pray in his name. Pray that we might come into the enjoyment of that soon, quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.